As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have with me a new friend, the very, very special, really made such a huge impression on me recently, Sam Lamott. Sam is a single dad. He's a college dropout. He's an ex-meth head who came out of a 10-year bender at the age of 22 with severe clinical depression, a two-year-old child, and zero life skills. Simply put, there is nobody more genuinely curious about how to be a human being. Your podcast is beloved and renowned, Sam, for so many reasons. And I would like to welcome you here with a great uh, nod, a great tip of my hat to you today, Sam. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes. So if you're listening to us and you are addicted or a former addict or you know somebody who's addicted, this is a, an incredibly safe space and you will probably have a laugh or two, perhaps even a cry or two as we unfold the life of Sam and the teachings that Sam brings. Uh, Sam, how old are you now? You're in your 30s, right? I believe I'm 31. I'm either 31 right. or 32. One of those. It's always a little bit of a question, isn't it? Sam, when you were born, you were born to your mom, who's an author, who's actually one of my favorites. And I, I don't want to make this about her. Someday I'll have her on the podcast. But I do want to say that you have addiction in your family. Her work was seminal in helping me relieve myself of my own addiction to marijuana and cigarettes and a few other things, but nothing as, um, as sharp as my marijuana addiction. She helped me immeasurably with her writing. I wonder if you could sort of walk us into what it was like to become addicted at the tender age of 12 and some of the sort of first things that you remember about this time. Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, I really came out, and I think well, a lot of people can relate to this, I came out sensitive and weird and anxious and nervous and concerned, really. You know, I, I was worried a lot, and I was worried about all kinds of stuff. I, I was worried that we were not safe because there wasn't a dad in the house. I was worried about what happened after you died. You know, like I remember being very young and totally terrified of death. I don't know. I believe most people have had this experience where you truly like on a somatic level understand, like you can conceptualize what it will be to no longer be conscious in this body anymore yeah. and how scary that is. That just black totally. pit of death. 
And yes. it was consuming, you know, and those kinds of thoughts were, were, were consuming. I, I didn't feel like a, a normal carefree kid. And the, you know, the dirty secret is there might not be that many normal carefree kids if you really dig deep enough. But yeah, I got a lot of solace out of, um, or a lot of comfort out of, you know, my mom's religious faith, which is Christianity. I love the idea of an afterlife that kind of helped. But by the time I was of age, you know, I, I grew up in the rooms of recovery. I grew up knowing what addiction was. I had an idea about what drugs and alcohol were. My mom would frequently introduce me to people and be like, hey, this is Becky. And she's a she's a heroin addict and a prostitute. I'd be like, oh, hi, Becky. And hi, Becky. You'd meet Becky a year later and she would have transformed. Wow. So I came out seeing the transformation of recovery. You know, I came out mm. understanding that something about addiction was bad and it left people these husks that I had to watch come back to life through recovery or not. So when alcohol and drugs first came around, I, I was like kind of a boy scout. You know, I was a good kid. I was very, you know, like I could have been a poster boy for D.A.R.E., although D.A.R.E. wasn't really too much of a thing in my school, but I was really against it. Like I really had ideas about what alcohol and drugs could do to people. But once I finally tried it, it was like heaven. You know, it was the first yeah. time yeah. where I wasn't thinking about what everybody thought of me and how I looked from everyone else's per perspective and if I was doing this wrong and why everyone else seemed so comfortable being in their skin. And I was just relaxed and, you know, in the moment, you know, and it was a, it was a spiritual moment and it's funny to put it that way because it ultimately becomes one of my great undoings, although there are, you know, there are multiple undoings in my story, but it's, it's one of the, the lowest points of my life. If you go 10 years out to when I finally got sober, but in that moment, it was the same sensation that people get when they meditate. You know, it was like, yeah. I was finally, I Free. finally understood. And years later, when I first tried uh, Xanax, I remember thinking, holy shit, is this what everyone else feels like all the time? Cause it's an anxiety medication. Yes. And it was so good. I actually, that was the one where I decided, you know what? I have enough addictions. I'm addicted to meth and I'm addicted to pot and I'm addicted to alcohol. Let's just not add this one to the mix, which is fortunately for me, the same case with Oxycontin and heroin is I was already a meth head. I liked mm. it. But mm. when I first tried alcohol, it was a fantastic experience. And, you know, anybody who's in recovery knows where this goes. I love the the kind of stages that they break it down in where it's first it starts as fun, then it's fun and trouble, and then it's just trouble. But I had a lot of fun for a long time. And I had to, you know, I hate to to qualify or make it seem like I'm unique, but it was a, it was a strange experience for the time. You know, mommy blogging hadn't become a thing. Right. Uh, Instagram wasn't a thing. But I was the center of my mom's story very publicly, and that was part of my upbringing. You know, it's a, it's a huge reason why I keep my son out of my social media. You know, I might post a picture of us on a road trip, but it's a double-edged sword. It was like, like I hear from, from people like you, so many single mothers have come up to me and, and talked about how important operating instructions was or how important my mom's writing was. 
For sure. And at the same time, in my own recovery, in my own therapy, in my own healing, it is one of the most painful things. You know, it's, it's one of the... And, you know, fortunately for me, my, my mother and I are incredibly close. We basically live on a hippie compound together. You know, we, we have separate mm -hmm. mailing addresses, but I can throw a rock at her, you know, pretty much. That's beautiful. Um, at any point in the day, like I could probably get a rock through her, her window, even if she was inside. It's great for your kid, too. Yeah. And <sighs> the reason why I, I say it like that and I don't sugarcoat it is it's it's something that I think a lot more parents are going to have to confront with the current landscape, which is, you know, if you are harvesting every moment of your life as a commodity, as something to to buy and trade with, you know, kind of social credit, um, that, that has an effect on kids. And, you know, one of my theories for what was so truly powerful about being a total drunk and junkie and asshole and, you know, psychotic drug-filled terror is it was also the first time in my life where I was truly in control of my narrative. Oh, God. Right? It was the first time in my life where it was like, oh, you think I'm this. Little do you know I'm not. Right? And. Wow. And, you know, it doesn't excuse my behavior. You know, there's lots of, you know, drugs produce a lot of drug-related crimes, especially if, you know, if there's not the, the money and the capital to support it. So there was stealing. There was violence. There was in, in, insane behavior. But. um. There is something that I, there are people who take their addiction and they, they talk about it like it's some demon that possesses them. And I don't, I don't take that approach. You know, I, I look at young Sam and I see somebody who really was, was trying and, and didn't have the right guidance. You know, you could say I didn't have um, a dad and, and that could have helped. I didn't know what it meant to be a good man. So I had this idea of this kind of macho, tough guy, and mm -hmm. that I desperately wanted to be, but was kind of out of my reach. You know, I was a small right. kid. And so, but to, to have the power to basically say, nobody's going to tell me who I am anymore. Nobody's going to think that they know me because they don't. And I'll show you mm -hmm. why. I mean, mm -hmm. I have a lot of sympathy for that kid. You know, I have right. a lot of sympathy for my mother who, I mean, my son just turned 12 yesterday and you know, we have the teenage years coming up and we're probably going to find out if he's got what I got relatively shortly. And, um, yeah, yeah. I can only imagine what it was like to have somebody like me, somebody who literally was willing to, to risk his life regularly through his uh, dangerous behavior. It's uncanny how timely this is for me. Uh, I have a 15-year-old son who asked me, has asked me many times, you know, please don't post pictures. And more recently, he actually posed for a picture, which was very new and rare. He's very tall. He's a full-blown man now. And um, I happened to post that picture, and he, upon realizing that I posted it, demanded that I please take it down. Um... And I understood instantly why, of course, 
But listening to you, I have flesh on the bones of that understanding. And I really, really appreciate this. And I would implore any parents listening to think about it for your kids at seven, eight, nine. They might really think it's fun to have their picture posted. But the moment they get to, you know, 12, 13, 14, they're starting to individuate and realize that they are their own person, as you've so beautifully said. They might not want that anymore. And so you have to really consider what that looks like for your family and talk about it because it is part of our current landscape. So that was a really important point. And it's like, it's really like everything else too, where it's not good or bad. There's such a complex mixture as a, as a parent, as a, you know, I was a single dad at, well, I wasn't a single dad at 19, but I was a dad at 19 and the majority of my adult life has been as a single dad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you write about your your struggles with parenting, like it's so, it's like medicine for other people. So there's this complex balance. You know, I've had the same exact situation of you where I take this beautiful picture of my son and I on a trip to the Eastern Sierras. And I just, I'm like, can I post this? And he's like, no. And I'm like, come on, man, you know? So I, I, I get it. I get it from both sides. But for me, you know, I, I've run, I've had the experiment run one way. And so I'm going to try and run it the other way. And then maybe for my son's children, if he decides to have children, we'll have a better understanding of, of how to navigate that balance. Yeah. It's uh, what a wild time we're in. That's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? Thanks for saying that for our listener who might really have experienced the truth of their story of parenting being medicine for someone else. I honor that. And uh, I just want to say that that's also true. <laughs> Both and. Um, Sam, when you were at the height of your addiction, I've heard you speak about this a little bit on Tim Ferris and on your own podcast, but I'd love to hear just a, a brief bit about that There were a few moments in my own addiction where I was just alone with myself and I heard myself say, this is it. It's over. It's over now. Can you walk us through what that moment was like, if you can recall it, if there were several? I'm always very curious to hear from my fellow friends who are former addicts how that went for them. Yeah. So for me, I I was... And incredibly hard-headed and maybe it's a byproduct of amphetamines to feel truly unstoppable but even at the very end you know I was miserable I was getting so little sleep I was about to be in a custody battle I had seriously injured somebody in a kind of meth-fueled rage I mean I've used the word torture to describe it he stole from me and I, I basically tortured him and people think that's an exaggeration, but it's pretty true to the word, if you think about it. It was delayed harm, and his family had hired a private eye that was following me. My mom had disowned me. You know, she basically came up and she said, you know, hey, I liked amphetamines too. Good luck. <laughs> you know, like, we're at, yeah. and there was a moment where she, and she's told this story before, so I don't feel bad sharing it but there was a moment where 
she held a sharpened pencil to my neck and told me to get out. And she just told it actually recently on a very uh, recent episode of Tim Ferriss as well. That was great. <laughs> there you go. So game changer. I, I was basically like when people describe rock bottoms, one of the amazing parts of recovery is that there's been this understanding that people get to choose their own bottom. You know, it's not, it's not about, you don't have to go all the way. I know people that found themselves drinking wine alone and that was their bottom. That was, you know, that was their moment where they thought, holy shit, I have no dignity. And that's as valid of a bottom as mine, but mine just happens to be really extreme. I was, I was on amphetamines. I had very little friends left. My, my best friend at the time, Bruce had basically said, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch you die. And I, you know, I was about to lose custody of my son or any parental rights, really. I was at risk for going to prison for violence. Um, I was very close to homelessness. I was, I, I, there was not like whatever you consider good in life. There was not anything that resembled good or peaceful or functional. It was pure chaotic madness. And I really thought, you know, there was not much of a problem with that. But I could recognize that society had a problem with that. Uh, I truly thought it was society's problem. Hmm. Um, so I decided to play ball. And what playing ball looked like was getting sober, going to a 12-step program, uh, getting a what they call sponsor, which is like a mentor, and working the program really good and cleaning up. So whatever came, I could pass drug tests. I could have this mentor come show up for me at court and tell them what a transformation I've had that I could, you know, win some of my friends back and, you know, and then I could, you know, maybe after like a year or something, you know, go back to what I like to do, which was to be in oblivion. You know, I have, uh, I have a reality problem. I don't like it that much. I'm 10 years sober now. And I've done so much work and there's still days where I don't like reality. I don't necessarily want to be here. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I like to put it that way rather than suicidal because I, I ideate, but I don't really actually put any like, <laughs> like feet to the ground on, on not it. being here. But I have days Got where reality is really tough. And so to be out of my own skin, to be somewhere else, to be comfortably numb was heaven. And I didn't really like the idea of, of giving up this, the one medicine that worked for me, which right. was to not be conscious, you know, to not be here. But I decided to play ball for society's sake. And basically what happened is by the end of that year, hmm. I had worked really hard so that this person would come testify for me. Right. I, I had, you know, found employment. I had somewhat stabilized my life. My, my mother was more hopeful about us one day having a relationship. And I, uh, it was just hard to ignore, but the Mm -hmm. first year was really hard and I've seen it happen in different ways. I've seen a lot of heroin and opiate guys have what they call a pink cloud, which is when you're really feeling good early on. Like you're taking your first sober breaths in a long time and you can shit again. Uh, Can we swear? Of course. Okay. You can shit again and you have a sex drive again and you're eating normal. I've seen them Mm -hmm. really happy. My experience was that I I couldn't see color. You know, my life was gray and black and white. Whatever chemicals in your brain that make happy and content 
were white, you know, and it, it took about a year and a half to truly feel like something was worth it. But I just, you know, I, a year happened and I couldn't argue with the results. And so I mm. decided to keep going and that's, you know, I'm coming up on 10 years in September and that's kind of still the same approach I take is like when the year comes up, I renew my library card, you know, like things are so much better than, than what they were. Yes. That I'm just going to keep going. Yes. I'm bowing to you here. My head is bowed. I'm really glad for anyone listening who has been down this path in any form or iteration to hear your story, and I thank you for it. In becoming a parent, now you have a 12-year-old, so you've been through the ringer, as it were, and I do feel, mm, I've realized in the last year, I would say, that there is this kind of moment, as especially as a mom, as a female, where we have to kind of truly let go of that narrative that you spoke of earlier that your mother had about you and that the world, quote unquote, had about you. The letting go is one of the greatest art forms, I think, of a parent's life. And I don't know that you're necessarily there yet at 12, but I can't wait to talk to you about it when you get, when your, <laughs> your child gets a little bit older, because it's such a dance. It's so delicate. Like I really, I, I have to give so much space and time and take nothing personally. And I wonder if you've had any glimpses of that experience yet. You know, I think I, I see the, the glimpses as you would put it, but you know, we're, we're still at the age right on the cusp. I can see his friends not very interested in their parents anymore. Jack's, you know, maybe it's just slower, uh, blossoming a little slower, but we're still in a phase where he, he loves to hang out and spend time together. But I can see it's like the similar way where I can kind of imagine what it would be like to no longer be alive and how scary mm. the idea of no longer thinking in this brain would be. Mm. I can see what's ahead, and um, but I'm not... I can't offer much insight because okay, it's not the journey I've been on yet, but I know that right. I know that it will come. Right. And when you say that it's scary to think about not being in this body anymore, what is the prevailing fear that you have? It this is I talk about death a lot and I actually feel um I feel pretty ready for it. And I'm wondering what scares you the most. I like to ask people this. Well, I've come to enjoy living. You know, there are days where I don't feel like being here. But for the majority, I, I enjoy living. I, I You know, I, I feel like I have things I want to do and things I want to learn. I have kind of the, you know, a, a mind of like a philosopher. I, I want to learn weird facts and history about ancient cities and what the, you know, French philosophers thought and what the Greek philosophers thought and what the German philosophers thought. And like, I, I enjoy the human experience enough to have some grief, you know, have some um, sadness about not potentially not being here and not getting to be here. So, you know, on, um, on one level, I know that there was a lot of time where I was not in existence and I was not conscious, you know, millions or billions of years or trillions. I'm not actually sure how old our universe is, but 
there's a lot of time when I wasn't in existence and when I'm no longer in existence, it'll probably affect me the same amount. Not of at course. all. Right. Um, so there's that, you know, I've, I've talked to some brilliant people, uh, um, Frank Ostaseski, who's personally helped, you know, he's a hospice. Are you kidding right now? Oh my gosh. If you haven't listened to the Frank Ostaseski episode. I'm staring at his book right now. I have not listened to that episode. His book is, is opened, pressed flat opened on my shelf in front of me. He is literally one of my guiding principles. And he was brought to me by Roshi Joan Halifax, who works with him all the time. What a light. Yeah, so this is somebody who has personally wow. helped guide thousands of people to to death, and it was a good conversation. But wow, in uh, just this, you know, human form in this, you know, hominid body, I I like things here, and I like, you know, it. There's as much as I would love to be detached and fully at peace with the idea of letting go. And there are, there are days where I feel that, you know, the podcast is, is something I'm incredibly proud of. And I, I haven't, I've been away for over a year, but it's something where like, I'm, I'm glad it was made. You know, I, I basically filleted myself for three years uh, to, to the public. You know, there was, there's not a lot of boundaries and I might do it slightly different when I come back, but it was something I'm incredibly proud of. But on a human level, yeah, I have to admit I'm attached. I'm attached to life. I'm attached to my loved ones, my friends, my mom, my girlfriend, my son. And I, I enjoy the struggle. Like, I, you know, it, with COVID, there was a lot of strange conversations. I can imagine. Um, there was a lot of, you know, with the, the fires in California, there's a lot of strange conversations. You know, what will happen if society collapses, right? And and I know people that kind of said like you know I've had a good run I think um, you know I don't think, I think I, I'm good I think I'm good <laughs> and I'm kind of more the person where it's like no I, I want to see how far I could go you yeah, know I feel that too I got my my truck ready to do that and yeah. see how far down yeah. how far down the experience we could go with that and I'm yeah. I'm very optimistic that I think society will stick around for my lifetime but mm. as long as I can get. And I don't put too much effort into like really trying to extend that. I, I take decent care of my body and I eat well, but I also, you know, have nicotine on and off all the time. You know, yeah. I, I'll go two years off and two years on and two years off. It's been that way for the last 10 years. Right. And, um, but are you off or on now just so I can live vicariously through you? If oh, you're on? I am on. And it oh, I'm so great. jealous. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're at the, t we're, you know, I'm at the tail end of that kind of two year stretch. Yeah. Uh, it I think a it's little a little ugly and yucky tasting. I think it's only been a year. Yeah. Well, I do um, vape because I like to date non smokers and I'm God, very grateful. <laughs> I'm, I'm prejudiced against it. I got it. Totally. But yeah, we're at the point where it's kind of like, ah, man, it's getting in the way of CrossFit. It's getting in the way mm -hmm. of stuff. I don't like sneaking around my son. Yeah. So. Yeah. But it was, it's been a good run. Oh, slightly jealous. Um, let's talk a little bit now about your podcast. It is so brilliant. Um, teach us how that came to pass, the, the origin story of this project and everything that you want my listener to know about it so that he or she or they will listen to you as well. Yeah. So I had a 
breakup that crushed me. And I wrote a series called The End of the World Part One. And I just started writing about how absolutely destroyed I was. And people really gravitated to it. You know, and it was like, I remember a professor at UCLA saying, hey, our class is following your, your, your story. That's our class project. <laughs> and me being like, wow, I mean, I'm a college dropout. I can't believe people are reading this. And it never came to a good end. You know, the, the part I was getting out of it, at some point, it was like cathartic at, in the beginning. And then it was kind of like, eh, I'm done. But I blogged for a while. And people seem to like my blog, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But I wanted to do something different. I always loved podcasts, and I, I thought, you know, I looked at the landscape. I looked at especially kind of like the, the self-help, spiritual, and it's so slick. You know, there's so many people that are so slick, and it's like it just if you listen to too much of it, you just feel like a total hunk of shit because you must be doing something wrong. And I just thought, you know, I've, I've met the world's great spiritual people. I've seen them in traffic, you know, I've seen them upset and angry and bitter and childish. And I, I want to, to create something that captures the, the full range of the human experience. And, you know, it's like kind of the, the guiding line was if you believe what you see and on some mm -hmm. level, you're told to believe what you see. You're told that the wind exists because you can see it blow the trees. But if you believe what you see these days, you believe that we look like our profile pictures, that our lives are these strange curated events that we, we post, and that something clearly must be wrong with you. But the full human experience is beautiful. I am coming to you today after a awful childish fight with my girlfriend last night. I am exhausted. I am tired. And I say that because two days before I was in Mexico in Instagram paradise. Right. Right. Oh. So uh, if, right. if we continue as a society to only post us at the waterfall with our mm -hmm. loved ones smiling, then we are missing a huge part of the human experience. We are missing the fact that on our way to the waterfall, we got really annoyed with each other. And one of us may have thought, God, I just can't do this anymore. And it is beautiful that we got to the waterfall and we made up and we're still speaking. That's the beautiful part is that we're still speaking, not the waterfall behind us, you know, but the, the part that, that life is but complex. you made it. Yeah, you that, made that it you out made the other it. side and, of that. And you realized yep. how petty you were being and that you weren't being yeah. a kind and delicate person. And you should probably apologize for that. So, you know, I dream of a world where people post, Hey, my wife and I, or my husband and I are just started seeing this relationship therapist. We were really struggling. This person is great. We recommend them totally. We're having mm. such a good experience rather than you see just the highlight reel of the relationship until you see the breakup post, right? right. There's a giant chunk of our experience missing. And so from, from what's seen. Yeah. From what, from what's seen, from what's right. posted, what's, what's talked about. You know, it's like, it's whispered and right. I personally just, just want to do, you know, what I can, which isn't much, you know, it's, but just to, to try and capture the full experience. I didn't, you know, I've been kind of offline. And so 
I didn't post my trip to Tahoe. I didn't post my trip to, to Mexico. I keep a awesome journal and I print out photos and I put them in there. And when my relatives are going through my stuff, they can see this chapter of my life. And the reason for that is because, you know, I didn't really want to post about the ugly stuff either. <laughs> so I just, I don't, I don't want to, I want to find a way to, to live publicly right. that doesn't require me to, to be a part of this system. So just simply put, we started the podcast and right. when I started it, I thought I had everything pretty dialed in. You know, I was like five years sober, maybe six years, seven, some, I was pretty sober and had a lot of recovery and had a, you know, it was coming off the heels of a, a good paying job and a comfortable life. And I thought I had it all figured out. And along the road, I am figuring out my mental health stuff. I just have these <laughs> catastrophic events. In sobriety, I tell new people, all my greatest fears have come true in sobriety. Right. I have had my heart broken. I have grieved, you know, losses mm. like that I will never get over. I have been yeah. fired. I have hurt in all the ways, but I have learned how to keep going in sobriety. I have learned how to build a structure that's not a house of cards to build something that that looks like the the temples in Athens with columns and if one column goes out I am still held up by the others. So Yes. It's so it's it's um I think one of the most important things that we can all remember is that we have choices as to what we share and your experience as a kid is certainly informing now how you navigate social media or any sort of sharing. Um, and I think your podcast is the most perfect venue. It's called Hello Humans. It's the most perfect venue for you to express all of the experiences, all of the teachings, all of the understandings that you're gaining as you get older in sobriety with the world without having to pretend. That's why it's so special. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, the the podcast, yeah. this is always confuses everyone. The podcast is How to Human. The, oh, the company as a sorry. whole is Hello Humans. Oh, it's okay. Every, my mom gets I it see. wrong. Okay. So. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine she's on some program and plugging you and saying it wrong? Oh, gosh. Okay. So the podcast is How to Human. How to Human. But, you, you know, yeah, in some ways it's been a commercial failure. I've been so blessed by the people who chose to support it. But, you know, I... I've taken a pretty big hit monetarily, but it's been such a huge success in other ways. I have gotten, I believe now we're at five uh, suicide notes or messages that said that people were planning or thinking about suicide and they heard something on the podcast that helped them go wow. get help, right? Which is the five lives. Well, I don't know, you know, if they would have gone through with it, but I do know that it, hmm. it five people found it important enough to know that that something they heard, which could have been the guest or or me, I, probably the guest. They heard something that reminded them, oh, yeah, like this is not a permanent s state. You know, this is something temporary right. and that right. this is something that some of us just, just go through, you know. And mm. I think that I will continue to try and take the best care of my mental health as I can. Mm -hmm. But I also wonder, you know, maybe in, in 20 years, I still feel this way from time to time. And maybe that's just part of my human experience. 
if I have anything to do about it, you will still be here and you will still be telling the true stories. And we will all be still benefiting from your willingness to tell said true stories. I think that for most of us, it's a really rough road. And to have people like you speaking truth, sharing the truth of your incredible guests really does change the, the landscape for us, changes the game. Thank you. And thanks for reaching out. Yeah. You know, it was like I told you, it was just, it was kind of like a lifeline. Really? For, yeah, you know, some sometimes, especially in this time period that I've been off and I've been been in a real dark night of the soul, trying to figure out what do I want to create? You know, like yeah. what do I want to broadcast on the airwaves? You know, when I, I think about the the people who listen to it, God, sometimes it feels like a huge responsibility, you know? Like I don't want to broadcast something that's going to go to tens of thousands of people and, and, you know, be bad <laughs> or, you know, right. be <laughs> right. untrue or, or, you know, slick as, as I call a lot mm -hmm. of the, the Instagram world. Um, yeah. I want to keep it unvarnished in a way that doesn't destroy me. Mm -hmm. um, it's important. But you do have to make a living and you do have to support your kids. I do. And I do. live a life and be comfortable and eat food and have a roof over your head. So yeah, all those things are true. And I think, I mean, this is sort of, should probably be off the air, but anyway, I'm just going to go for it. I think your podcast should live a long, healthy life. And I do think that there are products and services that you use already that you could definitely talk about on your podcast and be compensated for the work that you're doing to get really solid information out to people. I, I agree. <laughs> my two, my two cents. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, I have to also take my medicine as well and do the same thing. I've been doing this podcast free for three years and you know, as we talked about on our first call, like I have to do the same thing. It's not feasible to continue unless I'm compensated in some way. So I have to go through the same exact, you know, trial, <laughs> existential trial. Last thing, any words on maybe one or two of your favorite guests that you've had on so that our listener today can jump over to How to Human and tap in? Aside from Frank, who I, whom I definitely want to recommend, and it dawns on me that I should probably have him here, too, to talk about death. Yes. Um, so it's, it's different. You know, every episode has felt so timely that the thing that we're talking about is exactly what I needed to hear. But one of the big, timeless ones that has pretty much stood the, the test of time, you know, is B.J. Miller, who is a, he also worked in hospice. He's a gentleman who lost an arm and both his legs. So he has his one arm. And he told me, wow. my job here is to learn to love reality. Mm. Boom. That's it. We don't really need to say anything else, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it, it's a short one, but, you know, coming from somebody who has a, a very different existence of what it means to move through the physical world. It's 
It's one of the most powerful lines I've ever heard is, my job is to learn to love reality. Wow. I'm just working through an existential disagreement with a dear relative of mine. And I get the argument, usually via text. And I write back, I love you, exclamation. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to disagree anymore. I just love you. There's something in that for this moment too of just learning to love what is like what's at the core of all of it this love yeah and it's hard right we're in the middle of a giant culture war you know <laughs> like it's really hard i know couples that broke up over their ideas about covid you know over their yep. ideas of the yep. vaccine over their ideas of biden versus trump we're in a very polarized strange time so yeah it's a to find some way to to love people anyway is is mm -hmm. God. I mean, that's kind of all our job right now. Love reality. Anyone else that you can name before we close? Oh yeah, I mean, there's Paul Williams, Brene Brown, Julia Cameron of the Artist Way. Oh, that's badass. I haven't heard her episode yet. She was she was great. A few unknown sure. people that were kind of changed. You know, it went from just trying to find well known people to you know, I gave few people a chance and they blew my mind were Richard Pimentel probably is one of the most amazing. I have heard of him. Yes. Yeah, it's one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And Jacob Nordby yeah. was fantastic. Mm. Okay. Um, Peter Rollins is one of my heroes now. And that was a fun episode, but there's, there's okay. so much there, you know, it's it, especially if you just start from early on, I, I'd be hard pressed for you to not find something that, speaks to you as a human. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's really why I wanted to share you with my listener who might not know about it. It's such good treasures in that podcast. Um, I think this is my final question. I won't promise, but what what does prayer mean to you? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question to answer. You know, when I was drinking and using, I was very religious. You know, you have a, a drug dealer point a gun at you, and you walk away from that interaction, it's very easy to go, thank you, Jesus. You know, thank you, God. When your life is in chaos and for some reason you keep getting another day, um, I was very, very religious and spiritual. And when I first got sober, it didn't ring true anymore. And I spent the first years, first four years of sobriety, an atheist, you know, not just agnostic, but a, a true material atheist where mm. this was it and... I started looking around my sober friends and I, and I recognized that the ones who had a higher power of their own understanding, didn't matter what it was, seemed to be doing better than I was. And so my journey back into spirituality was really pragmatic. It was really just uh, whether it's real or not, maybe if I just you know pray and, and meditate and believe in something greater than myself, maybe I'll, I'll do better. And that's been my experience. So you know, I'd, I'd say I'm agnostic. You know, I'm not attached to the idea that there is some higher power, whether it be a, a, a conscious, omnipotent, creative architect or just something that happens when you put 7 billion consciousnesses next to each other and they're interacting. But I do know that, I do know the purpose that prayer serves to me. And it's that when I encounter something that's greater than myself, that's completely out of my control, whether or not, um, you know, I, I have cancer, which I 
I was convinced I had something terminal two years ago. Something was so wrong with my health. It ended up being a hormone issue, but it took forever to diagnose. So when I encounter something that's greater than myself, I've learned to give it away, to give it away to something. If there is something bigger than myself. And I like the idea of, of living a, a spiritual life. And I've just found that, you know, if I pray, if I meditate, if I look to that kind of ideal that's somewhere inside of me, the, the thing that keeps wanting me to give the gym another try and keeps wanting me to try eating healthy for a little while for a change and try to you know, quit nicotine because you don't want to lie to your son. When I follow the guidance, whether it's something that's that I've conceived and created or if it's something that was around long before me or something that I'm a part of, I've just noticed that I enjoy my experience a little more. So I do it. Mm. And I don't yeah. concern myself of what it looks like or smells like or how it works. I just, you know, it's just at this point, I, I just know it works for me. Mm. Well said. Somebody said something to me, it dawns on me that uh, somebody said something to me that was very helpful for me when I finally gave all of the smoking of things up. As your mom says, not only did I run out of good ideas or any ideas, but somebody said this to me and it really changed things. They said, would you like your son to be doing exactly what you're doing at the age of 16, 17, 18? Would that be okay for you? Mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Good question. It was great. I didn't have to answer. It was completely and utterly rhetorical, but it moved me in a very real direction away from all of that, which I knew I wouldn't want him to do. Oh, it's, it's so wise too. I've heard somebody say you should care for yourself like a sick friend, you know? And that also, how beautiful. But it's a similar mind exercise, right? Like, would you want this person you love most to be doing <laughs> what you're doing? Right, right this moment, rolling that joint, sitting on the roof with a little bit of tobacco that tastes so good, fuck. Yeah. Um, the last thing, really, truly the last thing is the whole idea of watching our kids try things, come into their own and be with friends who are partying, you know, um, I've touched this a little bit in my own life and I found myself in a very real, very great laudable even presence of mind where I didn't make it a big deal. And I actually was thankful for the truth and encouraged the truth over all else and informed my kid that no matter what, no matter what kind of shit has gone down, if you tell me the truth and allow me to help in any way without asking a million questions or being annoying, you'll never get in trouble with me. Mm. It's it's beautiful and hard to maintain, you know. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we know in romantic relationships when the trust is gone, oof, good luck. You know, I had a therapist one time, right. a couples therapist in a failing relationship say, I I had broken the trust. And the therapist said, like, you guys can rebuild it, but this is gonna be like a, a year or, or years process. And um 
I try to do the same thing with my son. I had a uh, contractor one time who'd always say this line. He'd always say, you know, Sam, you can trust a thief more than you can trust a liar. Because if you invite a thief into your room, you know what he's going to do. And uh, oh, dang. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I've tried to work on with my son is like, listen, man, like we can either have a relationship full of trust where I believe what you say or I'm going to have to question every single thing you tell me. You will no longer be a reliable source. You don't want right. that. And that might happen for a couple of years, too. So, mm. so parent, yeah, parenting is a whole other thing. <laughs> no, it's very real. It's very real. And it's, uh, it's one of the finest tasks of your life. And I really do feel stronger for having other people around to with whom I can have these conversations and, you know, be affirmed and then be questioned and then be challenged and then be affirmed again. I, I think it's important for all of us to sort of stay close and willing to talk about what happens that hurts. Yeah. That feels important. Well, I'm so thankful. Thank you. I just want to say say this on air. Thank thank you for for reaching out. I mean, you didn't reach out to book me. You reached out to make sure I was okay. You know, and I did. I did. And you reached out to see if if your community could 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 help in any way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just want to say thank thank you for modeling what it means like to to really you know use your your influence um, kindly. You know, I'm just a I was just a stranger to you and, and, you know, you reached out and he said, Hey, are you okay? I just listened to this episode. It, it was amazing. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been, it's been great to know you on air, listening to your show and, and off air talking to you in private. Mm, bless. I want to give also credit where credit is due to my dear friend, Dr. Keisha, who sent me your episode with Tim and said, I think you're really going to like this. And Keisha, thank you so much for, for introducing Sam and me, even though we both, you know, did the work of getting together. I appreciate what you did, Keisha. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Keisha. Yes. And um, Sam, I truly intend to get in touch every few months and just check in and see how you're doing and see if you're learning anything or I've learned anything that might be of use. And just I'll stay close and you don't have to do a single thing. I promise. I appreciate that and, and look forward to it. Me too. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. 
The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.